right, let's go to our Bible study. In our last session, we noticed that the godly man has the heart of a psalmist. And we looked at the godly man's devotion. And in this session, we're going to look at two other aspects of the godly man's character. We're going to look, first of all, at the strength of a warrior, the godly man's discipline. And we won't spend a lot of time on this because we've spent a great deal of time already on self-control and endurance where we have talked about these disciplines. But I kind of want to summarize them and show you the part that they play in the, the uh, aspect of being a godly man. The train illustration in the last session showed that relationship that these essential virtues have to one another. And we saw that devotion to Christ is first. And that is nurtured in the greenhouse of solitude, the times that we have alone with God, in the sanctuary, if you please. But the scriptures teach that there is a second component, and that is discipline that is developed in the gymnasium and displayed on the battlefield of life. And Paul puts it this way in 1 Timothy 4, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. God forever links these together, discipline and godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. And Peter agrees because he says that we are to add to our arete, our pursuit of the likeness of the excellence of Jesus Christ and the knowledge of Christ that we've called the devotion to Christ. He said we're to add to that self-control and endurance. And those we saw in our last session those are the elements that, empowered by the Spirit of God, really give us the horsepower that drives the Christian life, the strength for the godly life. And the disciplines of self-control and endurance are just absolutely key issues in the courage that characterizes godliness. And I, I want us again to see the progression here. Devotion to Christ is first. We must have that wholehearted surrender to becoming like Christ. And then the knowledge of Christ. Self-control is next because now the passions have to be brought under the subordination of what is true about Christ and His ways. We have to learn to think Christianly and to obey Christianly, if I can put it that way. And then endurance follows. We have to continue that obedience even in the face of external pressure, whether it comes by persecution or whether it comes by peer pressure. Paul understood the necessity of these disciplines in the lives of believers who were engaged in spiritual warfare. In fact, uh, this is what caused commentator Barclay to say this about godliness. Godliness is the soldier's word. The Christian is at once the athlete and the soldier. As the athlete trains himself for the contest, so the Christian must train himself to be the follower of Christ. As the soldier must battle towards final victory, so the Christian must dauntlessly and tirelessly face the struggle of goodness. Can you imagine what our armed services would be like if every uh, personnel, every soldier in the army and every other military personnel in the other branches were just to do whatever he wanted to do 
if he wanted to put on 20 pounds by eating a lot of potato chips and ice cream and, and uh, soft drinks, well, then, you know, that's okay. If he wants to go on the training hike, the 20-mile training hike, he can do that. If he doesn't want to do that, he can stay back and he can just surf the web and, and uh, goof around and, and he can do other kinds of things. But he doesn't have to go out and do that. Can you imagine the state our military would be in if everybody had that option? It would be a disaster. Well, that is just as true for the church as well. Only we have the option, but many times we are taking those options that do not produce these disciplines in our life. But godliness has another component, and I want to spend the rest of our time this evening on that in this session. Godliness embraces a cause. Matthew 6.33 says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. God says we're to be seeking His kingdom and His righteousness. There is to be a, a, an embracing of the mission that God has for us on this earth. So along with the heart of a psalmist, the godly man's devotion, and the strength of a warrior, the godly man's discipline, there must be the loyalty of a patriot, the godly man's duty. Growing in godliness is characterized by an increasing concern for the Lord's mission on the earth. Godliness is not just being really, 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 really nice. Godliness is being really, 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 really involved in what God is doing in the earth. And of course, we must be nice when, um, when we're handling our affairs. Sometimes we have to be firm but we can also be nicely firm in that. But the main thing I want us to see in, in this section is that a godly man is involved in the cause of Christ. David, the shepherd king, evidenced this godly lifestyle of the psalmist, warrior, patriot. But what I want us to see, besides those things that we already know, is that David, as a young man, developed a reputation even among the other young men his own age, that he was a devoted and disciplined man. Would you look with me at 1 Samuel 16, 18? This is the testimony of one of David's peers. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of courage, a man of war, Prudent in speech and a man of good presence and the Lord is with him. Now, isn't that amazing? Here is one of his peers when, when uh, Saul's um, folks in the palace were looking for somebody to play a harp to calm Saul down. One of David's peers stood up and said, you know, I've seen a man that we can use. And David had developed a reputation of devotion. The Lord is with him. Other people knew that. His peers knew that God was with him and that he was a godly man. They noticed that he had discipline. He was skillful in what he did. He was courageous. He had restrained speech and he had good deportment. He knew how to handle himself in the court. David wasn't out of control. He wasn't lazy. He wasn't sloppy. He wasn't worldly. And his peers knew it. But there's another element that made him stand out. Not just that devotion and that discipline. David would not melt into the background 
and pretend that he did not see the evil around him which needed to be confronted even at great personal risk. As a loyal patriot, he would defend God's honor and advance his cause. This sense of duty and loyalty is the response of godliness. I think it is fascinating that while others cowered at this Philistine champion, David was enraged at his blasphemies. David was not concerned about Goliath's height. He was concerned about the Lord's name. My wife and I, last summer, had the opportunity to go to Israel. And we stood on a hillside overlooking that valley of Elah. And we could picture the Philistines on the opposite side of that valley. And we could picture the armies of Saul, the children of Israel, on the other side. And saw that brook running through the middle and that plain in the middle. And it was a stunning view. And something struck me there that I had never thought of before. I'd always thought of David's courage in going out and facing a nine-foot giant. And certainly, he had to be courageous to do that. I mean, this Philistine champion was trained as a warrior from his youth, the Scriptures tell us. And David is running out there in a shepherd's garb in a slingshot, and he's going to take him on. And we look at that and say, my goodness, is that a lot of courage. Of course it was. But I'll tell you what struck me as I looked at that. When I looked at that valley and, and, and visualized those two armies on opposite sides of the valleys and thought about the fact that one man stepped out of that Israel army and said, we've got to do something about this. David just didn't step out in front of a nine-foot giant. He didn't just step out in front of all of the armies of, of, of uh, the Philistines. He stepped out in front of all of the armies of Israel who should have been fighting instead of David. They had voted as a block. We don't do giants. Giants are too big. There's too much at stake. There's too much at risk. This guy is too tall. David didn't say he's too tall. David said he's too arrogant and blasphemous. And something's got to be done. I tell you what, that gripped my soul as I thought of that man not just stepping out in front of the enemies of the Lord, but stepping out in full view of the armies of the living God, the people of God, who would do nothing. Folks, that's courage. And David had it. David didn't consider the risk too great to get involved. He considered the dishonor to God too great to go unchallenged. The godly man embraces God's causes as his own. And he gets on God's side and it doesn't matter what it costs him. The cause of God is too great. Look at David's words in 1 Samuel 17. Then said David to the Philistine, Thou comest to me with a sword, and with a spear, and with a shield. But I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. This day will the Lord deliver thee into mine hand. And all this assembly shall know, Philistine and Israelite, 
All this assembly shall know that the Lord saveth, not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and He will give you into our hands. Folks, there is no genuine godliness if there is no heartfelt devotion and love for Jesus Christ, and there is no godliness if there is no brave-hearted engagement against the enemies of the Lord. Godly people are courageously bold on the Lord's side. And as I said in the last session, many, many people are Christian. Few are godly. They won't take the Lord's side if it costs too much. And that is because there is corruption in the camp. There, was a lot of, there were a lot of spiritual problems in the camp of Israel that day. Sin is seen by the godly man as an intrusion into God's territory. The godly man doesn't see himself as a tourist going through this earth, seeing all of the sights, collecting all of the trinkets and all of the frequent flyer points and all of it. He doesn't see himself as a tourist in this earth. He sees himself as a soldier in enemy-occupied territory. And that doesn't mean that he doesn't do some sightseeing, but he is a soldier primarily. And David certainly was that. The armies of Saul had been corrupted by their own sinfulness and their lack of faith. Paul had to address problems like this internally within the church as well. I want you to see Paul's view of the sin of immorality in the church and his view of those who allowed it to continue. In 1 Corinthians 5, he says, And ye are puffed up, and you have not rather mourned that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. Boy, that looks harsh. Yes. It's strong words. Because sin cannot be tolerated in the camp. He said, you're glorying, you're boasting about your tolerance is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Purge out therefore the old lump that you may be a new lump as ye are unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. Corruption in our own soul or in the souls of others does not stay contained. Neither is evil benign. Like a cancer, it grows and it destroys. And today, unfortunately, believers who know, let's say, about another believer within the church who is involved in immorality will not speak up and do something about it. They will not address the person. If they speak up, all they will do is gossip about it. The godly man doesn't do that. The godly man goes and deals with it with the person, and if need be, he deals with it before the church. The problem is, that not only does their tolerance of evil permit that evil to go unchecked, but folks, anytime you and I are, are tolerating evil, even in the lives of other people, that passivity of our own souls toward evil corrupts us. We are being made indifferent to evil and we're tampering with the sensitivity of our own consciences. I want to give you an example of that from Lot. He's an example 
of the polar opposite of godliness. Genesis says that the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. Lot knew that when he settled there. But he thought, that's, that's all right. Not too bad. And Lot is settling into Sodom while God is planning for Sodom's destruction. And God tells Abraham about it. And Abraham intercedes with God for the safety of Lot. And God sends three angels to get Lot and his family out of Sodom. And you know the story. They lodge with Lot overnight in the city and a homosexual mob storms the house. And in order to try to appease them, Lot offers them his two virgin daughters so that they can molest the daughters instead of the guests. A horrible thought in itself. And that doesn't pacify the mob. They won't have that. And the only way the mob could be dealt with was the, the angels blinded them and they finally dispersed. And Lot goes to his, two, uh, to his sons-in-laws and says, leave the city with us. And he appeared to them as one that mocked. What does that tell you about the influence he had been having spiritually on his sons-in-laws? The old man doesn't know what he's talking about. We've never heard him talk like this before. By the way, the mob had never heard Lot talk like that before either. They said, who are you? You've come here and dwelt within us and now you're going to be our judge? He had never made a statement of judgment before. And his wife and his two virgin daughters and Lot leave the city at the compulsion of the angels the next day. And his wife, whose heart is still back in Sodom, turns to Sodom and God turns her into a pillar of salt and she stays there. And those two virgin daughters go up on a mountain into a cave with Lot. And there, in order to preserve the family name, they get him drunk and commit incest with him. It tells you about how, how Sodom had infected their own morals. Well, how did all of this happen? Well, we don't have to wonder about that. Because God tells us in 2 Peter 2 exactly what happened. Verse 7 says, God delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation or lifestyle of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them, and here are the dynamics working in the human heart according to God Almighty. For that righteous man dwelling among them in seeing and hearing vexed or tortured his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. Don't miss the lesson that God is laying out for us here. A believing man's soul is tortured and worn down when he regularly sees and hears the wicked deeds of the world's filthy lifestyle and does not exercise his will against it. You might say, well, I, I, don't, I don't work in a Christian organization. I work out there in the world and there are people around me talking about their immorality and cursing and using profanity and blasphemy all the time. That may be true. But you have the opportunity to exercise your will to be salt and light in them and to preserve your own soul. And I don't mean that you have to fuss at them every time somebody uses a word of profanity. 
But you ought to have such a Christian testimony there that when they know that you have come to work, they know that a Christian is there. And there may be times when you address things or when you see the despair or the immorality going on to talk to, talk to them and say, I'm concerned about you. And I want, to know, I want to let you know I'm praying for you. And if I can ever help you, please let me do that. What you're doing is exercising your will against the evil that you see around you. And folks, if you will not do that like Lot, your soul will be worn down by seeing and hearing the unlawful deeds of the wicked. You cannot be quiet. That doesn't mean, as I said, you have to, it doesn't mean you have to preach a message every day and, all, and, and become a, make a nuisance out of yourself. But they ought to know that there is a believer here and he's different from anybody else we have seen. And by the way, this verse has some implications about our entertainment, does it not? You cannot sit yourself down and see and hear the unlawful deeds of the wicked on television or in movies and not have it affect your soul. Because you can't exercise your will against it. You know, you, at, at, at work where that is going on, you might put, and I hope you do it, put those people's names on your prayer list and intercede for them. And, and ask God for opportunities to witness to them. You don't do that with the characters in the movies. You don't start praying for that hero in the movie or that heroine or that bad guy in the movie. You don't pray for them. You don't email them to try to witness to that person. You're not exercising your will against that evil. The only way you can exercise your will against that evil is what? Turn it off. And I tell you folks, if you don't, this verse tells you that seeing and hearing the unlawful deeds of the wicked will tear down your soul. We cannot be glib about this. And we say, well, you know, it's not all that bad. I mean, all those people are going to bed and I don't see all of the really, really, really bad stuff. But you're watching that immorality. You're watching that exceeding great materialism. Even the reality shows are filled with worldly things that are wearing down your souls because you're not exercising your will against it. God is very clear. I want us to understand that evil left unaddressed corrupts both the evildoer, the one who's doing the evil, and it corrupts the evil tolerator. It makes him desensitized and tolerant of evil. The Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles are powerful examples of what godliness is like. Godliness speaks up about the unrighteousness around it. Godly men and women are spokespersons for God. They are His voice calling to the vast majority of the church to leave their mediocrity and pursue full devotion to Jesus Christ and His cause on the earth. Paul in Acts chapter 20 had several warnings that when he arrived in Jerusalem, he was going to be put in bonds and he was going to be imprisoned and he was going to face persecution. Would you look at Paul's attitude about that in Acts chapter 20, verse 24. He says, but none of these things move me. It doesn't matter how many prisons, how many stripes, none of these things move me. Neither count I my life dear unto myself. Now, let's just stop there for a minute. Why do you and I not speak up when we should? God just told us here. 
we consider our lives dear unto ourselves. He says, Neither count I my life dear unto myself so that I might finish my course with joy. I don't want anything to ruin what God has called me to do in this mission for Him. And the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. For I am ready not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. You're telling me that bonds await me. Well, if they do, fine. But God's called me to Jerusalem. And even if it's worse, even if it's death, that's all right. It's for the Lord Jesus. Folks, that's why I say the godly man will do all of this at great risk to himself. Because he is so caught up in the cause of Jesus Christ. This is the heartbeat of the Christian patriot. The one whose first loyalty and whose first sense of duty is to the kingdom of heaven, not the kingdom of this earth and not any kind of kingdom that he's trying to build for himself. He loves the Lord enough to advance the kingdom of the Lord even if it costs him his life. Most of us will probably not run for political office. I think there, for believers to do that, there's got to be a special calling. And we have several in our church here. And I am grateful for those people, those men and women who take very difficult stands against their peers and against their constituencies many times to do the right thing. And most of us will not run for political office, but we can use our influence to endorse someone who is. And my point of that, and and, and what we do when we endorse a candidate, oftentimes is we put bumper stickers on our car, and we put yard signs up in our yard, and we volunteer to man the phone banks and make those telephone calls and, and pass out flyers and all kinds of things. We're not the candidate. But we're publicly letting it know that we're on the side of this good candidate. Well, in your church, or at your work, or in your family, somebody else who is godly, may have become the point man and said, we need to do this. It's right. And you may not be the point man. You may not be the one out there front, out in front declaring, this is what needs to be done. But you need to join in that cause publicly with the one who is taking the right stand. Isn't it interesting that when there is dis- dissension in a church, the opposing people, the folks who are against God's way are very vocal. And they will man the phone banks. And they'll get on the telephone and gossip to everybody about this or that problem. Listen, when the godly man stands up and takes the right position, godly people rally behind him and let their voice be made known too. You never let a godly man stand alone. David should never have had to go out into the valley of Elah alone. A whole army should have followed him. Anytime somebody sticks his neck out for what is right, you need to be vocal about joining that person. If it's at your workplace, if you're at school, and maybe you're a teenager or even before that, And somebody starts gossiping about somebody and saying, such and such, can you believe she did that? And she said this. The first thing you ought to do is say, well, you know, 
I don't think she's always been that way. In fact, I've seen some really neat things about her. Did you know that 99% of the time when you do that, you will turn the whole conversation around because everybody is so wimpy? All you have to do is be strong about a position and everybody will back down. But the problem is the godly people don't stand up and say anything. And the only people who are vocal are the ungodly. We need to give endorsements. Paul instructed Titus to groom and deploy in the church leaders who would do this. And notice this in Titus chapter 1. He wanted leaders who would be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. He said, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers. They must be silenced, Paul said. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. Boy, that doesn't sound like postmodern tolerance, does it? That certainly isn't political correctness. Political correctness has shot the legs out from under courage. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Why do we do this? So that they would be sound in the faith. So that they would turn around and take the right side. The goal isn't to destroy that individual. It's to get him back on track. To get him restored to the right position. This, folks, is the duty of godly believers. As I said, godliness in our minds has been for some time, perhaps, that a really godly person is somebody who's just really, 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 really nice to everybody. A godly person is somebody who's really, really, really involved in the Lord's cause and will give up his own life, if need be, for that cause. Paul said in the last days that evil men and seducers will wax worse and worse Deceiving and being deceived. We can expect that and we see that arising in our nation. Evil men and seducers will wax worse and worse deceiving and being deceived. And for that reason, folks, Paul said, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus will what? Suffer persecution. And you know what, folks? They can suffer persecution. Why? Because they have the devotion of column one. And they have the self-control and the endurance of column two. And the godliness of column two. And they can endure persecution. Because they've got the strength. They've got the virility. They've got the boldness. They've got the courage to do that. Because God has formed it in their spirit as they have cultivated these essential virtues. The Hall of Famers in Hebrews 11 understood persecution. The prophets and the apostles and the martyrs and those persecuted believers. And if you're godly, other people will scoff at your narrowness about worldly indulgences. They will mock your desire to do right. They will, even believers will ridicule your efforts to call others back to a narrow way. But a godly person loves the Lord Jesus too much to let it go unchecked. Lukewarm and worldly believers cannot figure out the godly man. They think this guy's got, he's on a power kick because that's the only motive they can even think about for this kind of action. They don't understand this kind of devotion to Jesus Christ. 
They have to frame it in the only motive they know. And that is a power-hungry guy who's got to get everybody under his thumb. They don't understand that some people love Jesus Christ so much they're willing to put their neck on the line and be bold. 1 Peter 4, 4 talks about this. He says, with respect to these, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. In conclusion, I want us to consider Revelation 7, 9 to 12 to see how this battle, and this is a battle, I want us to see how it will end. Someday, folks, you and I will join that great multitude, which Scripture says, which no man can number, of all nations and kindreds and peoples and tongues, and we will stand before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in our hands, and we will cry with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. And when John saw that group of people, the angel came and said, Who are these? And John said, You know. These are they which came out of great tribulation, great persecution, and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. And they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them unto living fountains of water and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. These are the people that lived God-fearing lifestyles. They were godly. Folks, that's what Peter is saying would be our entrance, an abundant entrance into the everlasting kingdom if we were abounding in these essential virtues. So notice where we are in the chart. We're cultivating a God-honoring devotion to Jesus Christ that promotes righteousness and opposes evil. Folks, we've got to do away with the tourist mentality and take on a soldier mentality. That doesn't mean we're mean-spirited. It doesn't mean we're cantankerous. It doesn't mean we're hard to get along with. But we do draw the lines where God draws them and we'll defend those lines even at our personal risk. It's good. That was really good. I don't know about you, but I want to be involved in the Lord's work. I want to be involved in the Lord's mission. And I want to be a good soldier for Christ. I love, uh, I wrote down this statement uh, that I, the Lord just put on in my mind. Uh, he talked about godliness speaks up. And I think that's the difference. I think for a lot of years, uh, some churches like ours have put a godly label on a certain lifestyle, and we think, well, if we don't and we list these, and if we do and we list these, that equals godliness. And yet I think the Bible is replete with examples of who is actually godly. Now, just because I don't do some things or just because I do do some things, would that really warrant persecution? Because the Bible says all that will live godly shall suffer persecution. Just because I don't partake 
or just because I do some specific things that doesn't warrant persecution. But when I'm involved in the Lord's work and I speak up, that does. And that's when Satan is activated. I wrote this down. When your life means nothing to you, you will say something about Jesus Christ. Because he talked about, neither is my life dear unto myself. Remember he talked about, that's why many of us don't speak up. Many of us don't go into the will of God. is because our life is too dear to us. Well, it's too valuable for me. And if I do that, you know, the Lord will understand. Or I just don't feel like I can do that right now. We, Especially in this COVID year, we've just gone into this lackadaisicalness that has taken us completely out of the fight. And that's what God is trying to wake us up into and say, you know, it's time to get in the fight. It's time to be a good soldier. There's a reason that the Holy Spirit has inspired specific words like that is because our lives are not supposed to be so dear uh, to ourselves. Turn real quick. Will you, will you turn to a verse for me? Turn to Romans chapter 12. One of my favorite passages of Scripture, and I'm not going to preach, I promise. It's, <laughs> I just want to get this thought off my chest, and I want to read this verse here. Romans chapter 12. Now, the two verses... Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, we're very, 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 very familiar with. If you've been in church for any length of time, if you've read through your Bible, it talks about our reasonable service being a living sacrifice, renewing our mind, proving the will of God. Okay? But look at verse 3. Verse 3 says, For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think but to think soberly according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. You see what he's trying to do? He just finished talking about surrendering to the will of God, being completely devoted to Christ. And and the first thing he talks about is the enemy is going to be how you think of yourself. And you need to think more soberly than that. Because if I'm thinking about myself, now think about this. If I'm thinking about myself all the time and I'm thinking more highly of myself, am I really looking at things around me soberly. No, because I'm drunk with my own pride. I, I'm, I'm not thinking, the, the word soberly there means aware of. I, I'm not thinking of all that's going on around me that's being orchestrated by God that needs to be ministered to, that needs to be said and or done. I'm not thinking of those things if all I can think about is myself and my own self-preservation. You get it? So he talks about, look, here's what you're supposed to be, a living sacrifice and renewing your mind, proving the will of God. And then he says, if you're going to do that, you're going to have to think less of yourself. You're going to have to, as Jesus said, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. I, I love the Bible study. I genuinely do. I love this one. I love these. These last two have been really a blessing to me. I wrote many, many things down. Um, duty and loyalty is the response of godliness. Uh, just, just some amazing things. Anybody else want to add anything? Something that stu- stuck out to you? Maybe that you want to uh, bring up? Maybe something. Maybe God gave you a tag or something. Yes, Mike. Yeah. Would you agree, everybody in here? Would you agree that our country? is where it is in 2021 because we have had fewer and fewer Davids in the last hundred years. Absolutely. Um, we, we, we have, we've taken the, we've taken the position since 1921. Let's just go back a hundred years that 
the only way we can effectively lead our country is by a vote. And we think that is our godly stewardship. And yet the Bible will say the only way that you can lead a country is by the gospel of Christ. You know, our founding forefathers said that, that, that any people that is ever going to be rightly governed must be governed by the word of God. And, and we've gotten away from that. We've, we've, we think that we, well, I don't want people to feel bad. And if I stand up, people are going to say stuff about me. They've been saying stuff about Bible believers forever. And uh, so just, just some seed thoughts uh, there I want to leave you with. Let's have a word of prayer, and, uh, and we'll be dismissed tonight. Our Father, we love you. We thank you for loving us. We thank you for being so gracious. Thank you, Father, for the word of God and how it is so greatly effective on our soul. And I pray, God, we would take it, hide it in our heart that we might not sin against thee. We pray that your Holy Spirit, uh, Lord, would guide and direct us in your truth and by your truth. Help us to be godly. Lord, not in a mean way, but help us to speak up when we need to speak up. Uh, Lord, you've burdened my heart with a conversation that I need to have with somebody this week, and I just pray that you give me utterance, give me great grace, give me humility to say the things that I need to say, and I want you to be honored in all of it, and I know that you'll use it. I pray again, Lord, for these families who've lost their loved ones today, that you administer to them, give them great grace, help our church, Lord, to continue to go forward according to the measure of faith. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right. You